0: welcome to the echo community church podcast at echo we're all about being and making disciples of jesus christ and on this podcast you'll hear solid teaching from the bible from our pastors at echo thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message we're going to go back into the book of genesis uh last week pastor nathan shared uh from a different passage but uh Over the last few weeks, we've had different guest speakers. Pastor Paul, my father-in-law, was here, and he shared two uh, messages from the book of Genesis. I'm going to pick up, I'm actually kind of retreading a passage where he landed, because on that particular Sunday, he preached at 9, but not at 11, because we had Not-So-Spooky Sunday, and I want to get our services synced back up again. So we're going to go into Genesis chapter 2, just the end of it. And the title of my sermon this morning is simply this, Because God Said So. Because God Said So. Before I get to that phrase, let's talk about this phrase. Because I said so. Have any of you ever been part of a because I said so moment in your life? Okay. Um, generally, those of us who are a little, and I'm in that category, uh, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm, I've walked a few more laps around this blue marble than some of you have. I remember being on both ends of that phrase. I remember an age in my life where I was the recipient of an answer to my why questions with a because I said so response. In fact, when I grew up, that was pretty common. You know, kids were used to hearing parents or grandparents, teachers, coaches, um, responsible adults could pretty much answer my why questions with their response of because I said so. And that kind of got the job done, or at least it shut down the conversation. And moved me from questioning or delaying or negotiating into either obeying or disobeying. And uh, I don't know at what age I thought it was a good idea when my parents told me to do something or to stop something. Where I thought it was a, a good idea for me to ask them for more details. But probably it came pretty close to the time I learned to talk. And I, you know... I, Why do I have to go to bed at 8 o'clock? Nothing good comes on TV until 9. Why 8 o'clock? And eventually the conversation would always end with, well, because we said so. Okay, good enough. You're the authority figure. I'm not, might not be happy about it, but I know I can go no further. At the end of the day, you got the advantage because you're in charge. Why do we have to go outside when we want to stay inside? Why do we have to come inside? We want to stay inside. Why do I have to eat my vegetables? Why do I have to clean up my plate before I leave the table? Why, 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 why? I didn't ask those questions when they were asking me to do something I wanted to do or that I agreed with or that I thought was a good idea. I never said, why do we have to go to the swimming pool today? Why do I have to give you a list of things I'd like for Christmas? You know, I was absolutely, I got you. It was the other things. But as I got older, I started to resent the because I said so answer when I heard it. And so I remember very clearly when we found out Kendra was pregnant with Chase. As I'm starting to imagine what kind of dad that I'm going to be, one of the things I was just committed to is I am not going to be the kind of dad who when my son asks me why, I say because I said so. And listen, listen. I held out for a long time. It was not until he started to speak <laughs> that I found myself in moments of frustration saying, "Because I said so." But I tried. I really did. I tried a lot of times and I still try to this day when they, when I give an instruction, "It's time for showers." "Why do I have to get a shower?" "Because you stink." But Dad, I don't stink, and I'm like, okay, do we really need to like assess this? And what would that require? Why do I have to eat a vegetable with my meals? Well, because son, it provides for you vital nutrients and things that you need to be healthy and strong. Can't I just get it from one of those Flintstone multivitamins? Okay, that's a reasonable request. What do I do? No, you still need to eat these vegetables. Why? Because I made them. But I don't like them. You don't have to like them. Just eat them. Well, why? Because I said so. Who made you the boss? (sighs) Here's what I discovered. In my effort to give explanation, all I'm doing is giving more material to object to and more possible loopholes to be exploited. Because I said so. When I grew up, that was kind of a, our society kind of accepted that if you were in charge of something, that was enough. That your authority on its own was enough for you to decide. And other people had to fall in suit. However, that's no longer the case. We don't embrace that. We have, would you agree that we have an ongoing lowering view of authority figures? Okay. And in many cases, authority figures have earned that. And so I grabbed two parenting articles around the idea of because I said so. I read a lot, but these ones I thought really brought out some, some good ideas. One from the Idaho Youth Ranch, the other from another guy who writes a ton of stuff and is a nationally known Uh, Coach on parenting and intergenerational relationships. Here's the first one from the Idaho Youth Ranch. Quote, because I said so is a fast, easy way to end a conversation. True? True. True. But as far, but as for teaching kids reasoning and decision-making skills, it leaves much to be desired. I'd also say true. When you shut down the conversation with this saying, you're missing out on opportunities to teach your child, to connect with them, and to keep lines of communication open. I would agree. and I would also say there's times when after I've engaged, I'm fine with shutting down the conversation and ending the lesson, and I've already made an effort to connect. I've gone that far, and now I'm at the last rung of defense, and it's simply because, because I'm the authority here, and I say so. Another article. I'm not saying that's the right answer. I'm just saying that's where Phil is in his own personal development in this issue of being in charge and getting things done. Other article by Mr. Perna. Have you ever had the because I said so exchange with someone? Whether you're the person saying this or hearing this line, it signals frustration and a desire to close a conversation. Yeah, it does. <laughs> of course it does. Here's the part that jumped off the page at me. It makes the speaker's authority the sole reason for compliance. That used to be enough, but it's not enough anymore. Do you hear what that's saying? That just because a person is in authority, that's not enough to comply with their decisions. Today, young people want to dig deeper for a reason To do what is asked of them. And that's not a bad thing. That's why they ask why. I would say that's not always why we ask why. And that's why, because I said so, answer is so remarkably ineffective with this next generation. Not only does it stifle their spirit, it shuts down the problem-solving creativity that they Be honest with you there's a bias that i have when i read this article is the generation he's describing is one that i'm not a part of so what i don't want to do is just say yup this younger generation and punch 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 No, no 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 i don't think it is inhuman for humans to appreciate and want a reason for why we're being asked to do something we don't want to do i think that's pretty normal Now, depending on what generation you grew up, maybe that part of you was suppressed. You don't need to ask why, just do it. And then in life, you learn there's nuance. There's times where I'm asked to do something that I should probably just clarify before I do it, what the intentions are, what the specifics are. And if I might have some information to add into the equation that can prevent this from going disastrously, I'd like to feel that there's at least a respectful way to bring that to the attention of the person in charge. And I have to balance that against a respect for authority and not just embrace a worldview that says I should obey my authority figures if and only if I agree with them. And if I disagree, I have a right to withhold my obedience and compliance until they modify and we agree, or if they never modify, I just don't have to obey that part because I don't agree and my answers for why have not been satisfied. So there's this weird nuance here that i'm not going to dig the whole way down into but just to make sure that it's there but here's what jumped out for me my conclusions, trying to read this critically i will say that there are times when my sons have asked me why and they've i've i've paused and i've said go do this and i say but dad just so you know and they give me some information and then i say Oop, let me walk that back because it's The new information you gave me is helpful for me in determining the situation if i would have sent you to do that and you knew and you didn't tell me i was setting you and me up to be embarrassed i had three really good stories about that they all make me look bad so we'll skip them Um. (laughs) (laughs) the difference here is that i'm not perfect like god is i'm subject to error every one of the people in authority in life we're all subject to error But here's here's what I took. According to these two writers, the because I said so explanation is discouraged in modern days because it shuts down the conversation, number one. Number two, it stifles an individual's problem solving development. And number three, and this is the one that really jumped out to me. It makes the speaker's authority the sole reason for compliance. And what both of these writers are saying to us is that authority figures Need to change the way that we lead from how we used to lead and that when we're making decisions, we expect those under our leadership to follow. We need to invite from them their input. We need to open up opportunities to connect. We need to welcome their questions, engage in conversations and welcome their creative ideas into the solution before we expect compliance. And what I would say is there's wisdom in that sometimes. Sometimes. But now we're, at least in our Western culture, we're creating a new worldview that says, if your leader, if somebody in your life, be it a parent, a boss, a government, a coach, a teacher, if they make a decision and they're expecting you or somebody you're responsible for to comply with it, before you comply, you have every right to have a conversation to ask questions to push back, and they should welcome your creative ideas into their decision before they expect compliance. How are we going to unravel that? Uh, that? I'm going to let maybe Pastor Paul can come back and unravel that one for us. All I'm asking is: I wonder, I wonder, if this lowering view we have on authority figures, especially when they. Where where their explanation amounts to, well, because I said so. I wonder if that impacts us as Christians. And how we choose to respond to a God who oftentimes only gives us a because I said so. I wonder. I wonder if that shows up. When we in our own hearts are trying to land on righteous and holy living. I wonder if our own hearts, we dismiss things that God says that either A, evoke strong feelings in our heart to the contrary, or B, we don't understand, or C, doesn't fit into our idea of who God is and what he should be doing, and we choose to withhold obedience, or affection, or closeness with him, or worse, we, come, we go get another idea that's more aligned with our heart, and we grab onto that before we're willing to. Didn't we just sing it? I surrender to your design. Didn't we just sing that? And in singing that, we're admitting there's a battle in my heart over the design over permission to design my life. And it admits that God has a design for us and you and I have designs for ourselves and where those ideas overlap, there's no tension. It's where they do this. And so it's into that that we find this beautiful, mysterious, generous, shocking statement that God makes in Genesis chapter 2. He does something that modern day owners are hesitant to do. I I was uh, reading one of my very favorite, very godly uh, news sites, ESPN.com, earlier this week. I'm joking, I'm joking. Some of you don't get sarcasm. I'm being sarcastic. And I copied and pasted because I was reading this on uh, earlier, earlier last week. I was reading on like Tuesday, Monday when I'm getting ready. To, and I'm like, wow, this intersects really interestingly with what I feel like I'm supposed to draw out from Genesis 2. Uh, let me read. Uh, I'll just read it exactly. I copied and pasted it. The Las Vegas Raiders fired head coach Josh McDaniels and general manager Dave Ziegler, the team announced late Tuesday night. In other words, late that night, The owner gets on the phone with two of the head honchos in the organizations, fires them both. We wake up to it the next day. Article continues, quote, after much thought about what the Raiders need to move forward, I have decided to part ways with Josh and Dave, owner Mark Davis said in a statement. I want to thank them both for their hard work and wish them and their families nothing, what, but the best. My favorite part of the article is the next two sentences. Reached by phone and asked to elaborate on the reason for the firings. Davis told ESPN, quote, no comment at this time. So here what you have is a billionaire firing millionaires, and we don't really feel sorry for any of them, right? Now let me give you another piece of the story that might help you before I ask you some questions. Owners, part of the union agreements in the NFL, Uh, owners are contractually obligated to unconditionally guarantee the salaries of their coaches. You know what that means? When they get fired, if they signed a seven-year contract and they get fired after year one, you know what? They get paid for the next six years. Wouldn't you like that contract? Like, come on, man, sign sign me up for a 20-year deal, fire me tomorrow and pay me for 20 years. I will not, you don't have to feel bad for me at all. So I just want you to you know, ingrain that in your mind. The owner knew that if he fires these guys, he still has to pay them. In fact, this is the second time this owner has fired a head coach in the last two years that he still has to pay their contract. He had to fire John Gruden. He, has, he now has $85 million in salary that is due for two employees that will never work for him again. Wouldn't you like those problems? So why do I read all that? The owner of the Raiders football team fired the team's head coach and the general manager. When asked to provide a reason why he did it, he responded, no comment at this time. Here's my question. Did the owner have the right as an owner to fire those two employees? Yes. Yes, because he's the owner. Need to make a statement here, okay? This owner does not own people. The idea that a human being Owns another human being as their property is an abomination to God. We were created with equality in mind. And anytime a human being thinks they own somebody else and therefore they can do with them as they want because they own them is absolutely a violation of God's image in us. And that's reprehensible. So please understand don't grab this and say, well, I'm a husband and I own my wife. And no, you don't. I own my children. You don't. We're owned, we're not owners. Are you with me so far? If I busted your theology, I make no apologies. You don't own anybody. You're owned. You're owned. You can make a meme out of that if you want. My face does not belong on a meme. (laughs) I had a buddy, just quick levity, had nothing to do with the sermon. I'm admitting that before I say it. I have a buddy of mine um, that I just recently reconnected with, and he uses this app called Marco Polo. Some of you know what it is. Last thing I need in my life is another thing to have to manage. And so he's like, listen, we can catch up. We'll do Marco Polo messages back and forth. And so he had sent one to me. It was three weeks before I responded. And basically it amounts to me talking to camera and then sending that message to him. And he can open it up anytime he wants and read my little... Problem is, I don't like to see my face on a camera. And when I go through different scenes in life, I'm like, the last thing I need right now is to see my ugly mug talking into a camera. So I send it to him, and I'm just like, I'm sorry I haven't sent this in a while. Sometimes I just don't want to see my face on camera. I send it to him. And he's very dry and very cynical. And he sends back, he's like, uh, he gives me his whole message in the end of it. He says, you know, and you know what, I wanted to tell you, you know what, you're right. You, you are absolutely right. He's like, you just don't have a very handsome face to have to look at on this. He's <laughs> like, I love you in my life. Thank you so much for saying that. Back to Las Vegas Raiders and firing people. Uh, the, so we agree that the owner can fire whoever, he can fire these two employees. He has the right because he's the owner. On what basis did he have the right to fire them? He, I heard it. He's the owner. The governor, pick whatever word. He has the right to do it. Next question. Is he obligated to provide you and me an explanation as to why? No. Why? He's the owner. We don't rule over him. And why not? Because he's the owner, and as such, he can do as he pleases with, as he pleases, without obligation to explain or defend his actions. Now, I do say that with a caveat when it comes to humans. We have laws in place because people are corrupt. And we want to make sure that there, we do everything that we can to make sure there's no human being on the earth that has total control to do whatever they want without some boundaries because we say absolute power corrupts absolutely. Throughout the Bible... God reveals himself to us, among other things, as the owner. The earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it. 1 Corinthians 29, 11, he reveals himself to us. He is the owner. So he owns the earth, he owns everything in it. We as humans are twice his. He owns us twice, once because he created us, second because he bought us back by redeeming us. Isn't that crazy? He owns you twice. He made you, and then he bought you. He owns us twice. We belong to him. He is the owner. He is the creator. He's the designer. He's the definer. The Bible reveals that God is also sovereign, which means he's ruled by no one. He defends himself to no one, He has no committee he has to run things through, and he's subject to no one. He can do as he pleases and say what he pleases. This is what the Bible tells us. Are you at least with me so far? Okay? It's the beautiful thing about God. And yet, even though he can do what he wants, how he wants, without ever having to explain, defend, justify. He is under no obligation and yet, hidden in the plain sight of Genesis chapter 2, God reveals something remarkable to us about his character. Genesis 2 is an origin story. Two things. The origin story of women, the origin story of marriage. The Bible reveals to us how women came about, why Some of the details gives us the origin story of marriage. God says it. God says it. Reveals it to us. And right in Genesis 2, we have these three beautiful, merciful, compassionate words that reveal to us God's character. And here's those three words. This explains why. God owes none of us an explanation, and yet he explains himself. He explains himself. What do you call it when somebody gives you something, something that's good, without any obligation to do so? What do you call that? It's a gift? Absolutely. What are some other words we could use? Gift is probably at the top of my list too. What else we'd call it? grace call it generous would you call it kind would you call it loving yes every time god explains why it is always for our benefit not his it is never out of obligation We never put God in the the seat of the defendant, and we're the judge, and we say, unless or until you answer, I demand of you to tell me why you say this, why you didn't say that, why you're doing this, why you're not doing that. I demand of you, and I'm putting you on trial, and until you answer my satisfaction, I withhold my compliance. Every time God explains why, it's an act of generous, compassionate kindness for his kids because he recognizes if he doesn't give us a little bit extra explanation we're going to go wander and drift again so when genesis chapter 2 god says this explains why anytime you see that in the bible your ears need to perk up and say this is gold this is generous and what's he talking about in genesis 2 he's talking about the origin of sexuality he's talking about the origin of marriage he's talking about gender identity and all kinds of things that we have all kinds of strong feelings about don't we yeah And he could have just left it at a sentence. God made man one way, God made woman another way, they got married, that's it. And he runs the risk that by giving us more behind the scenes, you know, we're going to turn it into more loopholes to find. Well, if it was for companionship, I'm a man and I can find the same kind of companionship with another. Well, if it was for procreation, well, we can we can go through adoption and we can do all these different. We can let's dig into the original languages and if we can just say that it applied to the dominant partner and not the passive partner, then we can get around all. God says. And then he explains. So what does God say? How does he explain it? What does it mean for us? Let me just read to you just these last few verses from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18. This is the origin story for women. This is the origin story for marriage. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And then he rules out two potential helpers that didn't fulfill man's loneliness. His work... And the animals in creation okay so the Lord formed the ground formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky he brought them to the man to see what he would call them and the man chose a name for each one he gave names to all the livestock all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals but still there was no helper just right for him just so you're following along God made man God said man was good God saw that man was lonely and relationally isolated and God said that's not good And so God said, I'll make a helper who is just right, just right. And then we see that he gave the man work to do. And the man worked, but the work did not fill that void. God made animals and creation. And he brought that to the man. And they provided him a measure of companionship and I'm sure of purpose and pleasure, but not what a woman was supposed to provide for him. Interestingly enough, side note, God always says the woman was made just right for the man. says nothing about the man being just right for the woman. So you can take that and use that however you want. Okay, Let's keep reading. Verse 21. So the Lord caused man to fall into a deep sleep. I have memorized that verse and I claim it over my life. Lord, I don't need you to take a rib out, but I need some sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God, I guess the first episode of anesthesia in the Bible and the first surgical procedure, maybe. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why. Why is this recorded here? Because God is giving you an explanation that He doesn't owe you or me, for our benefit, so that it will make us easier to trust His heart, understand His intentions, and obey when our heart wants to push back against His design. It's almost like God, in His foreknowledge, anticipated that humans would push back against the very basics. They'd say, "God is not the designer; I'm the designer." My gender, my sexuality, what marriage is, is up for mine to discover and define. It's not up for a creator to push on me. My heart's strong feelings are the most reliable source of true identity. And anything that would oppose that is suppressing me and victimizing me. It's almost like God knew in advance that we humans have this bent in our hearts someday to say I don't even agree that I should have to submit to the Creator's design for the very basics of who I am and where I came from and so this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his this is not talking about marriage yeah it is to his wife that's marriage. And the two are united into one. The New Testament believed that it was talked about marriage. That's why it's quoted so frequently. Now the man and the wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What are we going to do with 25, verse 25? My father-in-law talked about that in uncomfortable detail two weeks ago. You can go back and listen to it. Nothing like sitting in the front, listening to your father-in-law talk about that. <laughs> this explains why. This explains why here's my big idea and we have to hold this together with two statements the big idea is this when God speaks he owes no man an explanation I know that's not exciting I don't want you to feel like that is suppressing or that is belittling or that God is being oh he's just aloof who does he think he is God (laughs) but when he speaks he owes no man or woman or child an explanation. He doesn't owe it. That's the key word. He doesn't owe us. God is never the debtor to us. There's some people that teach your giving works that way. Give today and God will give you 10 times back, 100 fold for your gift. That teaches that when I give, that God's now a debtor to me. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, Just, okay, there's like three of you that come that's good that's good (laughs) no god doesn't owe. god is not a debtor to any man or woman i give because god gave first if god didn't give me anything i'd have nothing to give well doesn't the bible teach that god will bless us yes it does but i don't give so that god owes me it's not an invoice god i'm gonna give you know i'm gonna give my tithe and now you're obligated to give me a hundred times no 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 When God speaks, he doesn't owe us an explanation. But the other statement that we'll talk in a moment, here's what you have to hold. But many times, God, even though he doesn't owe us one, he gives us one. Not always. He can and he does withhold explanations from us at times. For many different reasons. You've heard those servants before. Why doesn't God answer my prayers? Because I can't handle it, because I don't need to know because I need to trust him. There's a bigger picture that he's working on. We try and give all these reasons and they're all good, and yet, just because he, you know why he doesn't? Because he doesn't owe me one. You will, at some point in your life, have your faith tested and you will find out, do I need a God? Does my salvation and my relationship with God depend upon him supplying for me a satisfying answer for all my questions? You'll be tested. I predict that. If you haven't already had, you will run into a situation where the snapshot of your life in that moment demands in your heart an explanation. Why isn't God doing something I think he should be doing? Or why is he doing something that I think he shouldn't be doing? Like read the first words of Habakkuk. Seriously. God, I see wars and death everywhere and it shouldn't be civilians are dying and you're not doing anything about it. Well, that seems pretty current, yeah. Absolutely. He asked, and you know what God answers him? Nothing doesn't answer him. He sits in the tension of it. God, what I'm seeing in the snapshot of my life doesn't look good. Innocent people are dying. Nations are running over us. We're struggling here. This doesn't look like justice. It looks like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. Where are you in all of this? Read the rest of the letter, it's good. It's really a good one to read at night. And what you learn is that taking a snapshot is not the best way to see God's character always small sample sizes are tough to see God's big picture. The Bible is filled with little snapshots where it looks really bad. And people like to string them all together, and they'll start and say, well, God said this, and he didn't do that. And What about Deuteronomy 7 when this happened, and this one got killed, and that one was violence, and these people got run over. And they string all these pictures together and say, is that your God? And you say, you just can't take snapshots. And there's oftentimes a bigger picture that you've got to zoom out and see. It seems a little more clear when we zoom out. And, man, sometimes when we zoom in, it looks so messy. The only relief I have is that God doesn't expect me to sort it all out. He's the judge, and I'm not. When he speaks he owes no man an explanation but what you have to hold in tension with that is that but sometimes even though he doesn't owe us one he gives us one okay Um, every time he does it's merciful so here's a question is it sinful then for me to ask God for an explanation if we're saying that because God said so is enough, His Word is enough, and if I were a good enough speaker, I could get everybody worked up, isn't God's Word enough? And isn't you know what were the songs I learned in children's church when I was little? There's one, uh, this great theological masterpiece, the B I B L E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B I B L E, and like I know this will shock you. In our children's church, at times we actually put our Bibles on the floor and literally stood on them. I know, right, I, I don't know. Right? Listen, I'm gonna get more offensive in a few minutes, so you're going <laughs> have to hold, hold your shock and, for a little bit. <laughs> you no, know, I mean, I, like, we didn't, we didn't you know, we stand alone on it, right? And then God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me. And now we hear those songs, Are oh, we sang a whole bunch of other songs, I don't know if they were theologically correct. We, uh, I'm in the Lord's army. And we talked about I may never, as though these are aspirations, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the, I guess we had cavalry when I grew up, maybe I really was around a long time ago. Ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery, I may never fly over the enemy, but I am in the Lord's army. Yes, I mean, we talked about being soldiers in the army and now we're like, oh my goodness. Right? It's changed. It's changed, right? But man, I, my, a lot of those songs embedded in, if God says it, then I can believe it and that should settle it. So when I say God's word is enough, and we say, yeah, but what is it really enough for? It's enough to establish the truth. If you have more than one child, establishing the truth is nearly impossible. You'll hear the sounds from the other room and you'll try and conduct a quick trial and you have testimony that's not corroborating well, he started, he started, he started, he started. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you did this. Well, I didn't hit you in the arm, I pushed you in the arm. Well, you didn't push me in the arm, it was in my shoulder bone. You don't have a shoulder bone, it's a clavicle. What's a clavicle? Google it. Like, it goes back and forth. And you're trying to find the truth. And you're like, I don't know that we can ever get to truth here. I just, all of you just go find a corner and stand in it. Why? Because I said, no. Uh, When God speaks, it is enough to establish the truth. Because he is truth. His word is truth. So when he speaks, it's enough to establish the truth. And the second thing his word is enough for is to be authoritative. God saying it is enough at face value for it to establish order and for me to comply and live and obey within that order. It's enough for that. Now, is it enough to satisfy all our curiosity at face value? Not always. Is it enough to settle all of our doubts? Is it enough to remove all of our confusion? Is it enough to uh, change my heart if I disagree? Those are the things that will stretch you as a believer. But it's not sinful for you to ask God for an explanation. It's not. God invites us to ask him why. He's a big guy. He can handle it. It's not like he's so insecure that he says, oh, Phil, Phil got offended by that. Maybe I ought to soften my stance a little bit. He might not be talking to me as much and for the relationship. Maybe if I just back down. God's not insecure like that. He can handle your questions of why. You can, you can ask him, why did you say this? Why didn't you say that? What are you doing? Why are you not doing this? Of course, God welcomes us to ask him anything. There are some boundaries, however. We may ask, but we are not in a position to demand anything from God. I demand that you answer and you change this definition of where my gender comes from, and until you agree with my definition, I'm withholding my compliance. That doesn't work in God's world. It doesn't. We may not accuse God of wrongdoing. We learn that in the end of Job chapter 1. Job had some serious questions. Serious questions. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Job, there's another good one to read. You want to sink into some of this stuff? Here, the book of Job begins with Satan coming into God's presence. And God says, hey, uh, have you considered how righteous my servant Job is? And Satan replies, he only worships you because you pay him to. If you stop paying him, he'll stop worshiping you. And God says, all right, let's put this to the test. You and me. There's a cosmic part of the story that Job has no idea is going on. God's working on a big cosmic picture cosmic implications job has no idea nor does god let him in on it okay in other words there could be times where you don't think god's doing what god should be doing and you're ignorant of the whole cosmic timeline he's working on so he says to satan okay you can take away all my all his blessings i'll put them under your control you just can't lay a finger on him satan says all right we'll see he'll turn on you then for 38 chapters We have basically four podcasts going on. The four wisest men on the face of the earth are all sitting together, hypothesizing, rationalizing, postulating about why it is that Job is suffering so much, why he's lost everything that had meaning to him. You've got Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad, and they've all got their worldview, and they're all saying, it is this way because God's this way, and here's my my reason why and there's another one who says this is why it happened because of this and another one says no this is the real reason and then there's others who say no we need to listen to Job he's the one who's suffering here he's the victim his story should have the most weight and you get to the end of those 38 chapters and God finally speaks he says you know what you've all said a lot about me you've all said a lot about why you think these things have happened and why other things haven't happened and let me tell you you're all totally far off you've all missed it none of you are right Not so different from how most of us carry on today. When we run into something that emotes strong feelings from our heart, we don't go to the truth of the word, we postulate, we fill our ears with... We'd all be listening to these four guys' podcasts if they were live today, and you'd grab onto one that you think lines up with your heart, and God says, you're all far off, and you know why? You have no idea about the cosmic picture that's going on here. There was something going on cosmically between God and Satan that was worked out down here and they had no idea and that's why god said you're so far off because there's some of this you just didn't even see because you couldn't and i didn't tell you and the extra part of the story is if i would have told you i wouldn't have worked out of you what needed to be worked out of you so that's fun but he owes no man an explanation but it's not sinful to ask for explanations but job had a boundary he never accused god of doing wrong even though he slays me yet will i trust him Here's my reality, it hurts, I don't understand it, but apparently I can still trust him. That's a beautiful statement for us because I could hand the microphone around this room and say, talk to me about a time when you felt so much pain and difficulty and yet in that moment with no satisfying answers, you still trusted in God. And there are some of you that would have powerful stories to tell. So what does God explain in Genesis 2? Just the light ideas of gender assignment, heterosexuality, and marriage. Right? Is that what he explains? Yeah, he does. He doesn't give you four and a half pages. He gives a couple sentences. In these closing paragraphs, Moses answers for us the questions of where did the woman come from? The answer, the Lord God made her. How was the woman made? He answers that. God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, removed one of his ribs, and made woman from the rib. Well now, how exactly did he he speak it? Did he use modeling clay? Did he... This is what we've got. Imagine all you want. This is what we got. And guess what? It's enough. It doesn't satisfy all my curiosity. Fair enough. But it gives you enough. To believe that it's true and that God did it. Okay? It also answers the question of where did marriage come from? It came from the imagination of God for what was just right for man. And what constitutes a marriage? One man... One woman become one life for one lifetime. Pastor, are you saying, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. This is not my opinion. This is not my research paper. This is not my strong heart's contention. This is just what the Bible says. At the end of these six verses, God emphasizes he's not just Forcing this on us without an explanation, he says, I'm going to show you some of the blueprint for my design, though I'm not obligated to do so. I can create what I want to create for my pleasure, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background here. Here's his explanation. The sovereign, omnipotent creator God was pleased to make man in Genesis 1:26 and 27. And the man he created, God saw him and he was good. And the same God saw that man was alone. And in his loneliness, he was relationally, sexually, and missionally incomplete. These needs of the man could not be fulfilled in his work alone, in nature alone, or just in wildlife alone. And God said this loneliness was not good. And so, he made for man a helper to be his equal, who was, he says it twice, just Right for him. Just right. Well, What did God, what what, what was God going for? A just rightness. Just right. And the just rightness was baked into God's creative design in women. She was just right because she was similar to man in humanity, but different from him relationally, emotionally, and anatomically. Again, my father-in-law hit that in great detail. You can go listen to that. These differences made her just right for for the man as his equal partner for relating, loving, caring, procreating, and leading. That's why Moses concludes this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and the two are united into one. That final sentence clarifies God's design for marriage was not man with another man. Or else when God was thinking about what type of person would complete, he would have made another man. He didn't. He made woman. It's why God didn't make marriage for one man and one man, one woman and one woman, or one spouse with multiple partners. This is the blueprint that God created. And I know you're afraid to affirm or deny. I get it, right? Because whichever camp you're in, we conclude a whole bunch of other things. I'm just saying I align myself. Are you pro this or pro this? I'm pro God. I'm pro Bible. This is what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. What the Bible teaches if this is what God said, and if this is what God did and it's the truth, and I believe it is, then this should be enough for us to accept as true and to embrace. But we have strong feelings otherwise. And because we're here, maybe I ought to say this, um, This is really what this is, is it's talking about identity and our gender. Male or female, or any of the other, um, any of the other identifiers that we've, you know, give terms to. Our sexuality, which I realize there's a long list of different ways that people can sexually identify now. What biblical marriage is? These were established by God because He's the Creator, and if He designs it, He can define it. But what I want you to see, there is. It's really a question of identity. It's not a sense of what your heart feels because I think at the end of the day, I want to base my identity on something that doesn't change as frequently as my heart's feelings. And we can have strong feelings and those feelings can seem right to us. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it ends in death. I realize that not everybody on this earth shares the same biblical foundation or even others who come to different conclusions might say well if you go to this verse and you do the homework on this greek word it really could mean this and not that which i put the notes in there that's not even close to being true it's actually when you dig into it, it's more detailed the other way um it actually reinforces what what paul says but the solution is not to just pound your fist and point in someone's face in anger what it is is it's a break it's a rejection of that there is there is someone else who has given me a durable identity and how can you even begin to peel those layers away without a relationship with jesus my first question isn't well which how do you identify as this that, or the other it's what do you what do you think about god do you know jesus do you like jesus how do you know that you and Jesus? the solution is the same for all other rejection of god's design on our life is we need salvation through jesus we need that first and we need that. How can someone even begin to saddle, settle matters of their own identity in Christ apart from Christ? Do you hear me this morning? Do you hear me? Listen, that might not be your particular struggle, but there's other ones you have. And they're not ranked in God's eyes as one is more forgivable or more heinous than another, okay? Okay. I'm trying, I'm on an ongoing journey to understand who I am in Christ. And there are times where my heart just grabs onto it and it says yes, and there's other times I'm like, oh, that, that's not me at all, and I don't like that one. I have a hard time letting go of stuff that people do to me. I'm not gonna go in a long detail, because the risk of being, I don't want you to think too low of me, but listen, that's, I think I'm doing better, and every time I think I'm doing better, a bigger test comes. And that desire for to avenge myself and defend my word and for things to even out when someone does me wrong, that's just as damaging to my relationship with God as if I rejected one of these other things he tells me about me. But I know that the word of God is true. And I know that it is authoritative. And God could have just said so, but he explains a little bit more. But even in his explanations, he opens up more material for us to push back at, which is why even, you can even get people who will agree as the Bible for the basis for, for discerning what our identity is. And then we'll all go into different places of the Bible and try and move passages in the direction of our worldview rather than letting it speak to us. And there's a danger in that. What makes God's explanation so remarkable it's because he doesn't owe us one. And in explaining, he opens up more avenues for human dissent and objection. I'll give this to you real quick. We generally, sp- seek an expl- we generally seek an explanation from God in one of four occasions. We're curious. I'm curious and I want to learn. Listen, there's some times in life where you're asking someone a why question and it's not a loaded, o- you're just curious. Curiosity is a great characteristic to have. You know, you're, I walked into someone's home yesterday and it was just beautiful. And I just said, I am just curious. These floors are amazing. Did you do this yourself or did you have someone else do it? Why did you choose the colors that you did? How did you know to put them all together? I wasn't like getting I mean, look, you, you see me. I, I should have no design influence in anybody's life. I was just curious. I wanted to know them better. I I wanted to understand how they were thinking because in knowing them better, it draws closer together. There's a place, David says, "Uh, I wanna know your ways. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I might know you better. There's times that you just, you come to God with a sense of wonder and curiosity, and you just say, Lord, I just wanna know why you're so loving. Why why is it that you give me more and more and more chances? Why isn't that you don't write me off after a certain amount of time? We're just curious and we wanna know. And when we're curious, to learn why we can seek knowledge from God to know His ways. Another time, another occasion where you might want to know why is when you're perplexed. I don't understand, but I want to understand, and I need clarity. Now, there's, a, there's a clause in there. I don't understand, but I want to. That doesn't always go together, does it? Sometimes I don't understand, but I think I know what you're saying, and I'm going to conclude what you're saying. I don't want to know any different. I don't want clarity. I want to protest. I want to object. I want to push back. I don't understand, and I don't want an explanation why. Paul describes a situation of his own life, a condition. He says, we are perplexed but not driven to despair. When you're perplexed and you want to obey but you need clarity, you can come to God for that. I don't know if you've been in situations, but I have before, where I'm like, God, I want to obey you, but I don't know what obedience looks like in this moment right now. Can you help me understand what's blessable here? Have you ever been there? Someone does something to you and you're like, God, do I need to go to them or not go to them? Can I forgive them without having to have the conversation? What looked, What are my blessable options here? We're perplexed. You can ask God why. Third occasion, disagreement. <laughs> you ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand, but it's like, okay. I have strong feelings of the contrary. God is saying something here that on the surface, my heart has red flashing lights because he's pushing in on something I don't agree with or it looks like we don't agree on the surface. He is doing something that I don't think he should be doing. Where he's, usually for me, it's he's not doing something that I think he should be doing right now. I can't sort it all out. I have strong feelings of the contrary. Isaiah... uh, I hope my son's not in the hallway because he loves whenever I say his name. Uh, Isaiah 45, 9, I love this. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, who's shaping it saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? No, of course a pot doesn't. It doesn't have a will. We do. And sometimes what we do is we withhold our obedience out of protest over either an unsatisfying an explanation or an obedience strike until God provides an explanation altogether. Our strong feelings don't overrule what God has said. Many Christians, including myself, fall into the trap of rejecting sound doctrine when the Bible opposes what our heart feels. In these cases, we often search for other extra-biblical sources, especially those written by Christians and that use scripture verses to justify our feelings by either revising the Bible or attempting to discredit the Bible altogether. Just a few things from the Bible I'll share with you without comment. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. In other words, our tendency is to say whatever my heart feels strongly, most strongly about, that should be what I follow. Every Disney movie tells you this. Look in your heart, there's the answer. But the Bible says you got to guard your heart because you're going to think it's the answer. Proverbs 14:12 says, "There's a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death." Jeremiah 17:9, "The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is?" Why wouldn't it? my heart of heart tells my heart wouldn't think? Your, our heart's still broken. That's part of the fall, right? Romans 13:14. clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. And my favorite, 1 John 3, 20, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So sometimes we disagree and we withhold obedience because God's pressing in on something in our life that we disagree with. And really what it boils down to is our strong feelings in our heart want to be Lord again. And do we step off the throne of our heart and invite the Lord to sit in its place? Or do we make our feelings our God? That's a tough question. And I can feel how tough it is. So let me move on to the next point. Skepticism. I ask God, why when I doubt your intentions and I give you some verses there, I need to hurry to close. Let me skip past that. You can download the notes and read the rest of that. When I'm not getting an exp- when I want an explanation, where do I turn? I'll give you three places. One, the sound doctrine of the Bible, number one. When I don't know why and I need an explanation, can I encourage you? I say encourage because if I say, here's what you must do, you say, you're indoctrinating me. Fair enough. I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I'm going to try and help you learn how to think. The sound doctrine of the Bible. What, the, what has God already said? Lots of our, every week, every week, I get, I'm just like you are, I'm overwhelmed with articles, hot takes, blogs, posts. This person says this, that person says that. Here's this report, there's that report. We're trying to find the truth and whatever the issue du jour is. And sometimes it just gets so loud. And my first response is usually, awesome, I'll look at all that. But first, what is your understanding of what the Bible says? And that's where the conversation usually pauses. That's too much work. The world knows that. That's why they just feed to you what to think. We just go along and say, ooh, that feels good. I must believe that. Ooh, that feels bad. I'm not gonna believe that. Here's the warning we get in 2 Timothy. This is at the end of the book. Genesis is the origin story. The cool thing is that towards the end of the book, you get some of the end of the story. And here's what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now listen in. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine anymore. Instead, to suit their own desires, your own heart feelings, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears really want to hear. They'll turn their eyes away from the truth and turn aside to myths. If you have ears to hear, hear that this morning. Second place you can go to find an explanation from God is the person of the Holy Spirit. That's God in you. Jesus said, when the Spirit of, tr- John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own, but he'll tell you what he has heard. He'll tell you about the future. One bracket. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit in conjunction with your Bible. Because not every time you feel God saying something, It might not be God. I remember one time years ago in a land far away and all those other types of things, I learned that there was a person in the church who was mad at me. And I was shocked. Not that there was someone in the church that's mad at me. That's a daily reality of my life. But that there was somebody mad at me that I was so close to. This person was a friend, socialized together, stayed in hotel rooms together when we took trips, just spent a lot of time together, talked weekly. Like, this person's mad. Oh, yeah, this person's mad, Pastor. And, well, I followed what Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 say is that if I know someone's mad at me, I need to figure it out. So I invited the person to lunch. We sit down, and I say, I just, you know, I understand. I just want to come clean. I had heard that, that you might be upset with me. Can you talk to me? The person put down their fork, and their face got beet red. Finger out. And started, I can't use the exact language the person used, but said, I've been mad at you for 18 months. And then the next few minutes were just filled with all these accusations about my character, suppositions. person said to me at one point, I've given and named a number. I've given this much money to the church. And you'd think that that doesn't entitle me for this role and that role and this position and that position, but I've been l- passed over for everything. And I don't know what the conspiracy is. I'm th- sitting there thinking, I'm not smart enough to come up with conspiracy theories. And I'm... Just all this type of stuff and once it was all out there, my first question was, why did you sit on this for 18 months? Person's response, the Holy Spirit said that I shouldn't come to you and bring this to you. And I said, well, let me bring to your attention Matthew 18. What does Matthew 18 say? The exact way this conversation went. I said, it says, if you have an issue with another believer, leave your offering at the altar and go try and make peace, figure out the truth between you and so that we can have peace. Why did you sit on that for 18 months? That's not what the Bible says, he says to me. Is that what Matthew 18 says? I said, yes. And I said, I don't think that was the Holy Spirit contradicting the word. I figure we're already this far down the trail. I might as well just go on this. He says to me, then I guess I disagree with Matthew 18. Yeah. Yeah. So where do I go to find an explanation from God? The sound doctrine of the Bible, the person of the Holy Spirit, but in conjunction with the Bible, you can't trust your feelings to rewrite the Bible. Okay? Pastor, does that relationship mend? Nope. I hope it does at some point. It's hard, it's hard to go down the trail with someone who just says, I pick and choose which parts of the Bible that I follow, and I'm saying that's the basis for everything that I do. Don't do it perfectly, but it's the basis. It's authoritative. I've got to finish up. Wise counsel is the third one. Oh, man, I didn't even touch on this. Well, let me just read it then. This deserves much more time than I'm going to give to it. Let me just read it. Let me help apply this. These issues where strong feelings come up in our heart and we need explanation, they're gonna change cyclically. Since I've been pastor here, there's been a season where there's lots of seasons where there's outcry about biblical marriage and the definition of marriage and same-sex marriage. And then there are issues of gender identity and and issues of heterosexuality and homosexuality. There's issues over politics and leadership and voting and government. There was issues over race relations. Most currently, there's a big conflict in the Middle East with Israel and Palestine currently. Now, it's been going on for thousands of years, but we're watching a lot of this play out in front of us. And, and it is a part of our responsibility as pastors to help people not tell you what to think, but help you learn how to think. I also wanna be wise, and I'm not a politician, but I realize what I say and what I don't say often gets us, puts me in categories. I just wanna make sure I know what category you're putting me in. I'm in the pro-God category. I'm in the pro-Bible category. Okay? Beyond that, I don't know what your terms mean. I'm not really sure, so don't put me in any of them. All right, I'm pro-God, pro-Bible. Here's what the Bible said about Israel and Palestine. This is not exhaustive, this is not complete. Some of you have emails from me that you've read and they're long because I believe in giving you as much explanation as I can, but also letting you know what I am and I'm not saying as best as I can. This is why I got off social media. I'm terrible about giving you one sentence and accurately representing all that I think, so I got off of there. But here's a few things that I wrote and it's in your study guide. It just builds on these things. All land everywhere is God's land because he owns it. God gave a specific piece of land to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis 12, 1-3, Genesis 13, 14-17, and 15, 1-7. He promised this land in something unusual. This is one of the very few unconditional covenants in the Bible. Genesis 17, 7-8, Psalms 89, 30-37. What does that mean? This, pro- this land promise is an everlasting covenant that he fulfills both ends of the covenant. It's not conditional. And so, that means that even though they didn't have land for a while, then they had it, and then they lost it, and they got it back, then lost it, and then got it back. That doesn't mean that when they get it back, whether it's 1948, it doesn't mean that the covenant ends at that point. In fact, there's a lot of unfulfilled prophecies left that we need to look at Israel for. Ezekiel 37 and 38 in Revelation, talking about nations of the world rising up against Israel, which ushers in the return of Jesus. Well, they can't do that if Israel doesn't have the land. There is no land to come against like the Bible says, if they've lost the land again. okay. Um, he narrows the promise to Isaac and not Ishmael, but let me just say he also blesses Ishmael, doesn't he? He says, you're going to get all these, land. let me look at it today, God's blessed the people of Ishmael. He doesn't hate them, he loves them. And they have a lot of land and blessing because of that. Um, he promised it to Jacob, not Esau. Um, Israel's captivity didn't change their right to the land, Deuteronomy 30. The Bible also functions as a land deed in a certain extent because it gives us... Uh, archaeologically backed evidence to show that Israel the Israelites were in that land even before Muhammad was born so this idea that they weren't there at least the Bible gives you a a land deed to kind of follow God does not revise unconditional covenants thank God because there is this idea that many have pushed that saying well The Israel that we see today has been replaced by the church because they've blown it. And so God's taken all the blessings promised to them and then given it to the church. What that means is that God can walk back his covenants when he feels like it based on our performance. I don't want that. Do you? Because which one of us has earned salvation? Not a one of us. Um, God doesn't revise his unconditional covenant even when Israel is unfaithful and their track record of failures is well documented. I'm not going to take all morning to go through all the times that Israel has failed, but they have. They are capable just like we are. Jews, Christians, Greeks, whatever, you, whatever box you check, we're all broken, we're all fallen, we all can sin. And we do, and we have. God's covenant to Israel does not require him to call all of their actions as righteous and supporting God's covenant to Israel doesn't mean that we as Christians say everything they do is righteous all the time because it's not it is not now here's what i will say war is atrocious and yet one of the hardest parts of the bible for me is like ecclesiastes 3 the beautiful song you all love it says a time to kill and a time to heal a time for war and a time for peace. And though I don't totally get it to my satisfaction, God has often advanced his cosmic timeline through wars and killing. Hey. Well, Pastor Wood, I, all I can say is it kind of falls into this Job category. That I don't get it. To my satisfaction, I don't get warm fuzzies. And I don't think God gets warm fuzzies over all of it, but there's a cosmic timeline that he's working on here that is advancing towards a stage. And it describes in the end of the book a time where Israel will have no more allies and that the world will wage war against them. And through most of my life, I've been like, well, there's just, you know, how would Israel ever lose allies? They'd have to do something really, really, that looks really, really bad for them to be abandoned. And I'm like, "Whoa, well, yeah. Because I don't know about you when I see these First, you know, I'm seeing you know, Jews dying with these attacks earlier in the month of October and that ruin, you know, just grips my heart. I feel the same type of grief when I see Palestinian civilians die. Kids, parents. Every time there's been war in scripture, here's the, women die, civilians die, kids die, men die, all wars. Such is war, and I don't like it. I don't have to like it have to love war but I love God I trust him and supporting God's covenant to Israel does not require me to say to celebrate when I see anybody that Israel is fighting with have thousands of civilian casualties nor am I wise enough to look at every single rocket every single attack and say this was righteous that was evil this was. I'm not that good I just simply can't. So if you're expecting that of me, please release me of that. I am not ultimately the judge, God is. And I trust his track record, his track record, be it with Israel, be it with Arabs, be it with Americans, I trust his track record of being the righteous judge who can say, I can accomplish my will even though people are being disobedient. I I can accomplish my will and move this thing cosmically in a direction and at the same time, hold people responsible for their actions. Well, pastor, are you saying you're anti-Israel? No. Are you saying pro-Israel? I would say, what do you mean by that? I am pro-God's covenant. He said, they have a right to the land. They have a right to the, it's my land. I'm choosing to give that to them. They have a right to defend their borders. Well, pastor, what do you mean by defend their borders? I don't know. What's retaliation and what is, I don't know. I'm not the judge. But you know what's more important? The Bible says when you see these things happen, guard your heart. Get your life in order. Don't you don't need to become a political expert. Get your heart in order. This means that the end is approaching rapidly. And that's what I do see here. So I grieve for all the civilian casualties. Israeli, Palestinian, Arab. I don't want to leave anybody out. I don't know the nationalities of everybody. I grieve for all. The only peace will come when the Prince of Peace returns. Until then, it's very possible that this could get worse and accelerate and increase. It could, probably will. In fact, I know it will if you read the end of the book and you see what it looks like. I don't know how to sort it all out. I don't have sufficient answers to all of the different tributaries of this and, and uh, you know I recognize that a lot of times when I, I don't want to be too soft or too harsh, I just want to be accurate with the heart of God. It should matter to us. So I'm not here to legislate on what you feel, but what I am encouraging you to do, especially in a time like this where our hearts can really get strong feelings is don't forget about this. Don't forget about this. I do believe God's working on something cosmic Then in the snapshot, I'm like, I'm looking at these pictures and like, where's righteousness in any of these pictures? Any of these stories? Any of this loss? Where's the righteousness? I feel like Habakkuk, God, where's the righteousness here? And he says, well, if I don't answer your question, do you still trust in my goodness? Is it possible there's something cosmic going on here that you don't understand? Oh, I guarantee you that there is. What does my word say? Pray for peace. I pray for Jerusalem. I pray for those who are dying. I pray for the the gospel to somehow sweep through Palestine and Israel so that those... People can know hope in Jesus. I pray that all the barriers that are going up into people's faith right now because of what they're seeing and trying to reconcile it with God are gonna make it, in my eyes, almost more difficult for them to lead on a a God that, that loves and is kind when they're having to flee. People on all, everybody in that area is impacted. There's nobody that's not impacted. Everybody is. But I trust God to be the judge. Conclusion, here you go. Worship team, come. Come quickly. Our God who owes no man an explanation often in his mercy and love, supplies us with explanations so we can learn his ways, understand his heart, and trust his intentions. Why does God give us explanations and tell us why? Because he wants you to learn his ways. He wants you to understand his heart and trust him because the more you deepen in those things, the less we lean on explanations. The more you're confident in someone's character, their motives, their intentions, their ways, the easier it is for you to to trust their leadership when they make a call that you don't on the surface agree with. You say, you know, that doesn't feel right, but I know them well enough, I know how they think, I know what their heart is, I've walked with them for a period of time, I can get on board with that, whether or not they ever explain it to me. That's why God offers us explanations. So I just wanna encourage you, dig back into your Bible. If you're in there, stay in there. If you're not, don't start in Leviticus, maybe start in Gospel of John or the Proverbs, um, some of those books are a little tougher if you read them without context. Start on some of those books, and as much as we absorb ourselves in news and reports and everything else, let's make sure we're saturated so that we can think critically about these things by filtering filtering them through what the Bible's already said. Amen. All right, let's end the service. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and if there's anyone here today that your heart is telling you right now you're not right with God, I want you to be saved today. So all you need to do is confess with your mouth that you believe you need to be saved, that only Jesus can save you, and that he will save you if you ask. You need to believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You need to embrace him as the Lord, and you need to retire from being your own Lord. That's what it means to be saved. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And you can experience salvation in this moment right now by praying a simple prayer that says, God I am a sinner and I wanna be saved today. So I'm calling out to you because I know you can forgive me. Please wash my sins away and make me new. You are my Lord and I'm gonna live your way and stop living my way. I'm not gonna fight you for your job anymore. And I invite your Holy Spirit to come live in me and start the process of changing me into the image of your son. In your name I pray, amen. And if you pray. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church Podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.